Great to see you all here this Good Friday. And, you know, one reason I'm particularly fond of Good Friday is that it's just one of those holidays, or should I say holy days, that reminds, reminds us just how strangely unique Christianity really is. Because here we are, gathered on Friday night to worship our Lord Jesus by remembering and celebrating that 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago on this very Friday, during the week of Passover, our Lord was crucified to death. Now here's why that is unique and also a little strange, especially compared to all the other world religions. Quoting uh, Fleming Rutledge here, the world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as worshiping a crucified man. Hmm. And yet the cross, Christ and him crucified, is at the very heart of our faith, is it not? So why? Why do we as Christians worship a crucified man? How did this come to be? Well, the passage before us today in the Gospel of Mark offers a highly surprising, highly concentrated answer to this question. And I'd say the answer goes a little something like this. The reason why the cross is central is because it's only at the cross that we see God for who he truly is. Put another way, uh, we're going to have no idea who God or Jesus truly is or just have kind of a fragmented, broken understanding of him until we see him from the foot of the cross. Here's an example to kind of illustrate this. Uh, imagine that you have terrible eyesight. And you can't see much of anything, really. Uh, for example, in the daylight, you, you can only make out fuzzy blobs. And, and in the night, you're basically practically blind, right? But then all of a sudden, you are gifted state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, prescription eyeglasses. And now, everything all of a sudden comes into laser-sharp focus. Your vision is even rated better than 2020. And, uh, and thanks to these glasses, you are seeing for the first time like the crisp edges of, of autumn leaves. Uh, you're able to actually make out the faces of your loved ones, as well as their occasional uh, blemishes. And now you're even free to drive. You can make your way out into the world because you're no longer a danger to yourself and others. What a gift these glasses are. And likewise, if you've ever wondered what God is like, what he has done, what he is still doing in the world as, as well as in your own life. We must see him through the lens of the cross. We must see him through the lens of the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And I'll say this, uh, otherwise if we try to forego the cross, eliminate it, skip it, just skate past it, I think what often ends up happening is that we also slowly lose our grip on the resurrection as well. 
we forego much of its divine surprise, its joy, its power, which means this, we must live through Good Friday if we're going to fully arrive on Easter Sunday, okay? So today's Good Friday journey to the cross, I'm, I'm going to break it down to three parts, of course. First, we're going to see Jesus forsaken, and then mistaken, and then finally seen. So Jesus forsaken, and then mistaken, and then seen. So at the start of our passage, first we meet Jesus forsaken. Please look with me at uh, chapter 15, verse 33. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here we begin with darkness, and then this uh, section closes with Jesus' howling cry of lament. And here Mark tells us it's the sixth hour, which is our noon, right, 12 p.m., which means Jesus has actually been hanging on this cross for three hours now. And we're so numb to the cross. We think we know what's happening there, but just so that we get some sense of what Jesus is actually going through on the cross, uh, here's some important background things to know about how and why the Roman Empire crucified people back then. Uh, the first thing I want to tell you about is that crucifixion was actually quite common, but it was a punishment that was normally reserved for the, the lowest and the worst dregs of society, basically the scum of the earth. We're talking about uh, people of no status or worth or, or traitors, slaves, thieves, uh, prisoners of war, political rebels, which is maybe the category that Jesus fits under. And second, the goal of crucifixion was not to just kill someone, right? That would have been too easy for a brutal killing machine like the Roman Empire. They didn't invent crucifixion, but they nearly perfected it. So the goal with crucifixion was to kill someone and to make an example out of them by putting them through the most painful, humiliating, and dehumanizing death possible, after which you erase their memory, just obliterate their existence from the social consciousness. That was what crucifixion was ultimately about. And here's how crucifixion typically went. First, the guilty party, or the supposed guilty party, was separated from everything and everyone that they loved and held dear, brought to prison, and they were severely beaten and scourged with whips to the point where they're, you know, nearly dead at that point, bleeding, bruised, broken, And then they're paraded through the public, oftentimes naked, carrying that cross that they're about to be nailed to. And this cross would weigh upwards of 100 pounds. And then they would be paraded or brought to a very visible place, a hilltop, because once again, these people were being crucified as an example, as a warning to those who would dare cross the empire. The idea is this. 
The idea being if you, if you cross the Roman Empire, we're going to put you on a cross. So um, it's at that point you're, you're nailed up um, or tied up, but more often than not nailed up. And then you start to experience this excruciatingly painful death. And that's where that word excruciating actually comes from. It comes from the, the, the Latin root crux or the word cross. And this death on the cross would sometimes happen in just a few hours or it would take days. And oftentimes death would happen through asphyxiation because you're literally trying to hold up the weight of your body by your wrists and your body's just slowly crushing in on itself. It is horrific. And there was no proper burial afterwards. What happened most of the time was that these dead bodies were thrown into basically a pile, a dump, which was often the feeding grounds for wild dogs. That's how they erased you from history. Uh, so learning this helped me to understand all the more why the scriptures tell us, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed. Now I want to draw your attention back to our passage in Mark, where we're told that all of a sudden, darkness has fallen over the land. And when you see such strange darkness during the, the, the week of Passover, it can really only mean one thing, which is that someone is under a curse, that God's judgment has fallen on someone. Of course, what's truly shocking is that God's judgment appears to be falling upon none other than Jesus of Nazareth. The only one who has ever lived God's way his entire life in perfect righteousness. He's the last one that should ever experience anything even close to death on a cross. And yet this is exactly what we're seeing. Jesus crying out in agony with a loud guttural voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you notice from our first reading, this is the very first line from Psalm 22, this lament. So what exactly is going on here? Is Jesus somehow surprised to find himself here, you know, feeling sorry for himself, just expressing all the emotion and pain as a, as a victim of, of terrible bad luck? Or, or some heinous injustice? No, not at all, because as it turns out, earlier in, G in, in Mark's gospel, Jesus repeatedly predicted the necessity of his death, the necessity of this cross. Which means that what we're actually hearing here in Jesus' cry is someone who is in the very throes of carrying out what he intended to carry out, his core mission. And what is this core mission? Here's what he told his disciples. His core mission was to give up his own life as a ransom for many. Listen as I read from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus told his disciples, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, normally, a ransom is only required 
when we're trying to free someone from bondage, right? Um, so what exactly is it that the many, pretty much everyone, is in bondage to? Here's the answer according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What holds us in bondage, what we need deliverance from, is ultimately our sin. And what we need to be delivered or liberated from is also this present evil age. And by his cross, according to the very will of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus accomplished just that. So just to be clear, I want to be super clear just in case we kind of fall back into this line of thinking. Jesus is not giving his life to further improve the life of good people who have earned or deserve salvation or rewards in this life. All right. No, the, quite the opposite is true. Jesus actually gives up his life as a ransom, taking the place of unrighteous sinners, as he is the holy and righteous substitute. Listen to how the Apostle Peter puts it in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the reason why Jesus is crying out as the forsaken one on that cross Jesus is actually taking upon himself the full weight of humanity's penalty for sin. He's completely enveloped in that darkness. You know, we can't really imagine the horror of what Jesus actually had to endure there. I think even getting an ounce or or being exposed to even an ounce of the cup of wrath that he drank from, from would ultimately drive pretty much most of us to complete madness. That's how I imagine it. That is what he is enduring there on the cross. And why does he do this? So that our sins may be forgiven once and for all so that the powers of darkness may be defeated once and for all and finally have no claim on us, so that we might live as a new creation, ransomed, that is free, brought into the very presence of God and beautifully robed in the very righteousness of Jesus himself. Uh, But sadly, in our sin, in our hard-heartedness, we're, we're actually quite prone to miss out on this, even if it's right in front of us. Because in the very next verses of Mark, we encounter some people who don't understand why Jesus was forsaken. They miss the point. 
and this leads them to become quite mistaken about the meaning of his cross. And I think they're there as a warning to us. Because it's actually as if uh, God himself is offering uh, these people an opportunity to see who he is via the cross. But their response ultimately is, no thanks, we're looking for something else. Look with me at verse 35. Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, as as I alluded to earlier, it wasn't unusual for a crucifixion to draw a crowd. uh, And I'm sure Jesus' death drew quite the crowd. But after hearing Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, uh, it appears that some mistakenly heard Jesus as, as calling out to Elijah. You know, Eloi, Eloi, Eli, you know, they, they sound similar. So, you know, they're, they're maybe riffing off of uh, Scripture's very own teaching that Elijah would actually precede the arrival of the Messiah. That is, if you recognize Elijah, you also recognize the Messiah. So, I'm sure these misunderstanding bystanders are thinking, oh, maybe Elijah will answer and save him, and then we can... Uh, rely on this guy to be our, our, our chosen king, our Messiah. But here's the, the tragic thing. Jesus had already told the crowds about Elijah, that he had already come in the person of John the Baptist, meaning a lot of these people completely missed Elijah. And just like they were mistaken about John the Baptist, the true Elijah. Here, they're even more mistaken about Jesus. Because the proof that Jesus is the Messiah is not necessarily in his ability to get off the cross or escape it. No, rather the proof that Jesus is the Christ is in how he will endure that cross, how he will stay there to the very end, because that's his mission. And Jesus does endure to the end. And then two unprecedented and shocking things actually take place as a result. Right? Look, look with me at verse 37, where after Jesus is forsaken and then mistaken, Jesus is, is finally truly seen. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Uh, In one sense, the the entire gospel of Mark has been building up to this one very brief sentence. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, like uh, some of the other gospels, what this loud cry was, but the, the phrase that he uses to describe it is, he uttered a loud cry. This could also be translated as, Jesus left with a great shout. 
right? It has this ring of victory, of I have done it, it is finished, I can, I can move on to the next thing. <laughs> and uh, the question is, what did Jesus accomplish? The very next verse tells us that um, about something that happened that, that shows us exactly what he accomplished. Verse 38, where the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark is just painfully brief sometimes, and he forces you to think, and he forces you to remember what he said earlier. And one important clue that he gives us to interpret the meaning of this tearing of the curtain is this one other place in the gospel where he uses this verb, torn. You know where it is? It's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 1, verse 10, at the baptism of Jesus, when the heavens are torn apart and the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and God the Father declares, this, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The beginning and the end begins with a tearing of the heavens. And at the end, what we see here Mark is referring to the innermost curtain of the temple, the one that limits access to the Holy of Holies. Uh, it's actually the 60-foot tall, uh, four-inch wide, uh, four-inch thick curtain, which is closing off access to the most holy place, which is actually where we're told God's presence dwelt on earth. It's literally where heaven and earth would meet. So for now... Uh, so for us now, what does it mean that this curtain is torn? In one word, it means this, access. Here's how Hebrews 10, verse 19 puts it. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. Now, another question would be, just what kind of people might be allowed now to enter through this, this curtain into God's presence? And this is where I think the centurion and his confession might give us some insight. Because as I mentioned, uh, no human being in Mark's gospel has recognized, or maybe I didn't mention it, but I'll mention it now, no human being in Mark's gospel has recognized and confessed Jesus to be the Son of God. Fifteen chapters and no human being has recognized Jesus as the Son of God until now. And who is this man who recognizes Jesus? Well, it's none other than a Gentile soldier representing the evil oppressors, the Roman Empire. I just want to make this one thing clear, uh, and this makes the centurion's testimony like even more shocking. The only reason a centurion would be at the site of a crucifixion is this. He's either carrying out the crucifixion or directly overseeing it. And yet, because Jesus came to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many, 
as this centurion sees Christ and him crucified, God opens the eyes of this otherwise hopeless sinner trapped and in bondage to this present evil age to see and to behold none other than Jesus, the very Son of God. And if there's hope for him, is there not hope for us? And so today we remember and we celebrate that it was this Jesus who hung on the cross, who was forsaken so that we might be welcome to enter in to the most holy place, into the very presence of God through the curtain, which is his very flesh. So let us behold Jesus today through this gospel of Christ and him crucified as a people forgiven, cleansed, made righteous, people who have been ransomed from the bondage of sin and death so that we too may bear witness to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who reigns forever and ever. Amen.